All right, if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. All right, last week we looked at this great idea that uh, God is with us in the testing fire and that the various troubles we go through are, well, they're in God's sovereign hands. He's, he's helping us change. He's testing the genuineness of our faith, and, and our faith, when you trust him in the midst of fire, is more precious than gold in God's eyes. All right, I found, came across this in Job 23, right, that the Lord knows the way I take, and when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. And that, that, those are words from a man who suffered much, who's, who's teaching us how to trust Jesus then in the midst of the trials and troubles. So we want to keep reading in Peter. Uh, there's a lot of really good stuff here. And so let me read First Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 10 to 13 because that's what we're going to focus on. It says, this is the word of our God. It says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And this is God's word. He has spoken to us today in love. Uh, you can trust him. Let's pray. Our Father and our good God, may we leave here today with our hope more fully set on the grace that you will bring to us when we see Jesus face to face. But until that day, help us better understand the power of the gospel to carry us through um, these trials to change us. And for that, we need your spirit to preach to our minds and to our hearts um, to help us better understand who Jesus is and what he's done. And so we ask for your mercy to do that for us in Jesus' name. Amen. So I need to take you back to history class, probably in middle school. But do you remember what, what an alchemist does? Right? The, the ancient practice of alchemy, they were the ancient chemists. Right? They wanted to take something that was common, cheap, and ordinary and transform it magically into gold. Right? Something is going to take the ordinary to the extraordinary. And what Peter's doing in this text, especially this whole first section from verses 3 through 12, He's saying, Christian, you have this super, the, the, the secret ingredient that if you mix it with ordinary faith and your troubles, God will transform you into something more precious than gold, someone who trusts Jesus. And he's changing you. And that, that's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, that, that God is a divine, loving, wise alchemist, so to speak, who puts us in the testing fire. And we're going to sing about this at the end. Uh, but he, he's producing something more precious than gold in order to refine us, to change us. And so, you know, you've been following Peter's train of thought. And I know this is what happens because this is why we, part of my job and, and the elder's job is to do counseling. When you're in the testing fire, do you feel the joy that Peter describes? <laughs> do you feel loved? 
I mean, I want to go to Peter and say, look, I'm not feeling the joy right now. This hurts. I'm doubting my ability to hold on in the fire. So I need this special ingredient. What is the special ingredient that, that, that turns my faith into gold, that changes me into gold? Right? It's what we talked about earlier with Job, the, the innocent sufferer, where he says, after all this, I am confident that I have been tested and I will turn out like gold. What is that secret spiritual ingredient to make me more like Jesus through these troubles? Patient, <laughs> long-suffering, less bitter, less complaining. Right. And I think the answer you get to that question from Peter is in verse, well, it's in this section, but if you look at verse 12, it's the gospel. Right. You've got to go back to the basics. What we think is basic is actually deeper than it, than it looks at first glance. It's the ingredient that God uses to change us. Right? This gospel, it's things into which angels long to look. It's our salvation. It's grace that belongs to us. Um, and it's all about Jesus. Right? It's, it's particular grace. The sufferings and glories of Christ. which Christ is the word for Messiah. Angels long to look at the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what you have with you in the fire. Right? And so just think about the little bit we know about angels. What an ast- this is such an astounding statement. Right? Don't picture the, the ancient pictures of artwork where they're these cute, chubby, little childlike figures with wings. No, these are, these are creatures, spiritual beings, heavenly beings that are in God's presence. They're his messengers. Right? And what we know about them is their theology is better than our theology. <laughs> right? They know who God is. They know he's holy experientially. They're hiding their faces, is what we see in Isaiah. Um, they have sound doctrine. Right? Much better than we do. Right? We, we, we're dependent on revelation. They... They were experiencing it in God's presence. And it can be even more blunt, right? Even the, even the demons have better theology than we do. Demons are just fallen angels. Right? So you think about Mark 1 when Jesus is in the synagogue teaching, right? He's, he's, he's teaching about the kingdom of God. He's teaching about the good news of the gospel. And everyone listening is blown away by how authoritative Jesus is. But in the middle of his sermon, someone stands up and just interrupts him. Right? Think about how awkward that would be. And he stands up and says to Jesus, I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. You are the Holy One of God. And the only person in that room that accurately knows who Jesus is at that moment, it's the unclean spirit, (laughs) this fallen angel. So the angels, they have a front row seat to what God is up to, and there are those who love him and those who hate him, but intellectually and by experience, we would assume that they would have a better deal than we have, but what Peter wants you to see is that they, these heavenly beings, love to gaze into the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that we have. Right? It's such a weird way to think about it, because the way people talk about angels here on earth is they, we want to see what they have in heaven, and they want, they're, they're, the picture is they are peering down from heaven, looking at us looking at what we've received in Christ, looking to see what God is up to next to save sinners. The gospel, the good news about Jesus, 
is the angel's magnificent obsession. They want to see more. They want to go deeper. They stare at the gospel the way we stare at beauty. Just think about that. When you see a beautiful person or, or beautiful art or the magnificent shades of purple and orange and a beautiful sunset, right? You just want to stare at it. You want to climb in. You want to get more of it. And that's how Peter describes the angels looking at the gospel. Do you see the gospel with that kind of intensity? We probably don't. That's why Peter's telling us about it. <laughs> All right, the Greek word for longing, they long to look. It's an intense longing. It's, the, it's a word, epithumia. You can hear the word epic. They have epic desires. Uh, it's the language of craving or addiction. Right? A deep, deep longing. They're looking into the gospel. And so what that tells me, all right, I need to see more. I, I clearly don't see what they see, or I don't value the gospel the way they value the gospel. And that's what Peter's trying to do for these suffering Christians, to say, look at what you have in the midst of trouble. Right? I mean, just look at the lineup of witnesses. You've got the prophets, the whole Old Testament scriptures, Right, the prophets of old were on their tiptoes trying to peer ahead into history as the Spirit showed them these things to see how the Messiah would suffer uh, and when, and when he would make all things new. Right, what is Jesus going to do? They didn't know his name, they just knew he was the Christ. Right, they're staring intently at the gospel. The Holy Spirit is all about the good news of the suffering Messiah and the glories to come. He showed the prophets of old he also showed the ones who preached the gospel to the people listening to Peter's letter. Uh, the Holy Spirit is at work every time the good news of Jesus is announced. The Holy Spirit came down from heaven to earth to showcase the gospel in the scriptures and in our hearts. And then, right at the tail end, right, it's the angels who are obsessed with this good news. And so if you imagine walking into that room, Right? The prophets rejoicing. Abraham rejoicing to see Jesus' day. Right? All these great Old Testament figures celebrating as they see what God has done in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is looking at it and the angels are rejoicing. What's that trying to communicate to you and I? Right? If you walk into a room and everyone's excited about something, you say, what are you looking at? Which forces us to say, what do they see? Maybe there's more to the gospel than just get out of judgment free card. Right. So the secret ingredient that we have is what the prophets long for. It's what the Holy Spirit's showing us. And it's what the angels long to look at. And that's, that's the secret that's with us in the testing fire. So Peter's going to teach us this morning how, how to use the gospel. And that's, that's what I want to talk about this morning. How to gaze at it. How to grow in your understanding of it. How it becomes a power in your life. Right? A passion. So if you look at it, first point, we need to gaze at grace. Uh, verse 10. Uh, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, which means it is now ours. Um, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. See, Here's how the gospel is described in one word. The grace that is yours. The grace that was to be yours from the prophet's perspective 
But now from our perspective, it's the grace that it is ours. And so, like I said, you've got to go back to the basics. The, the very core of Christianity is, is this whole idea of salvation that from beginning to end is a gift of grace. And it has a whole lot of implications and meanings, but it means God always takes the initiative. That's how we started in the letter. Right? This is God's plan, God's idea, God's work. He always makes the first move. And he always gives the, the, this gift to the undeserving for the praise of his glorious grace, as Paul writes in Ephesians 1. Right? See, grace is a gift to the undeserving, and the, the specifics are Jesus. <laughs> right? You can't connect grace from Jesus, the Messiah. But, but you've got to get your mind wrapped around grace because this is so counterintuitive to our everyday existence. It's completely counterintuitive to the way we think we need to fix what is broken. Think about it. Somebody isn't behaving, they need to change. What do you tell them? Stop it. Knock it off. Do better. Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. Shape up. Live sola bootstrappa. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. See, every other religion, every other way of life, every other way of living outside of the the economy of the gospel um, is all about moral self-improvement, how we must do better in order to get the gift, in order to change things. And the gospel, according to the scriptures, according to Peter, is all about grace, about what God, it's a story about what God is doing for moral failures, for sinners, for a whole world that is bent on running in the opposite direction. So Islam, right, I've, I've read, read through the Quran, right, I mean, a big part of what this is about is you need to work really, really hard on earth and trust and hope that Allah will be merciful to you at the end. There's no assurance, but it's all about what you must do. Muhammad's quality of life has nothing to do with you other than he says, you better do what I do, right? Buddhism is all about rising up, self-improvement, right? As a different conception of salvation, but did you know that the Buddhists have a, a story about a prodigal son? Have you heard that one before? Right? One of our, as Christians, right, we love the story of the prodigal son. It's about God's grace to the undeserving, the prodigal son who wastes everything that his father had, and the father welcomes him back before he ever gets his life in order. Right? Well, in the Buddhist version of the prodigal son, this father has a son, he runs away to far-off countries for like 50 years. So he's gone for decades. And the older the son gets, the more needier he gets, the hungrier he gets. He goes down into the pit. Right? But his father, in the meantime, has moved up in the world. He's gotten more wealthy, more powerful, more influence. Right? But the father's at the end of his life saying, I have no son, I have all this wealth, who am I going to give it to? And he's been constantly, in the decades since, just waiting for his son to return. He's looking for him. Well, the son comes back to his father's town. He's in rags. He's desperate for a job, and he doesn't recognize his father because his father's well-dressed. And all he sees is a man who looks like he will oppress him because he's rich. But the father sees him and recognizes him. 
But the son's running away, so what the, the father does in the story, he, he schemes to hire his son. Right? He convinces him to work without ever introducing himself. And so from afar, he just watches his son work, slave, day in and day out. And after several years of working hard and working well, he comes to his son, who still doesn't know it's his father. He says, you've been working. You've never been deceitful, lazy, angry, or grumbling. And I've never seen you, like these other people, <laughs> with such vices as these. So from this time forth, because you've done well, you will be my begotten son. And then he tells him the truth, that you are my son. Do you hear the difference? <laughs> the father in the Buddhist version says, I'm going to reward your good behavior. Christianity, the gospel, the story of Jesus, you're hugged while, while you still smell like failure, when you smell like the pigs, when you come home. It's about grace. See, if you look into the gospel, you're going to be bathed in a world of grace. Right, look, out, look at how it's described. It's, it's something that's announced, which means the gospel is good news. It's a, it's a historical event. It's something that happened that, you, that demands you respond to. We've talked about this before. Right? Specifically, it's about the good news of a Messiah who will suffer and die and all the good things, the glories that will come after. So, all right, it's the good news of Jesus' perfect life, his perfect faith. It's the good news of his death in the place of, in your place on the cross, right? Taking the judgment we deserve. It's the good news of his resurrection, right? These things happened. When he rose from the dead, it's for our forgiveness, for our justification, to give us grace. Uh, it's the, the gospel is the good news that Jesus ascended into heaven, and he's now the king running all things, and the one who had grace and compassion with nails in his hands on you is the one who is now working out all things for the good of those who love him. Right? So you're in good hands, gracious hands. He's at work making all things new. Right? So Peter is writing to remind these Christians, look at what you have, look at the grace you have received. This is what... Everybody has been longing for, do you, do you appreciate the value of the gospel? Right. And if you've been around, right, I talk about grace all the time. It's the core. I talk about it all the time because the, the Bible does, but um, do you have that, that sense of the beauty of grace? Does it draw you to want to love God more for what he's done? Jonathan Edwards put, right, there's a difference between having an opinion. You have this head knowledge that you know in your head he's holy and gracious, that I don't deserve this. But there's also a difference between knowing that and having a sense of the loveliness and the beauty of that holiness and grace that comes to you in particular. Right? Just like there's a difference between knowing in your head that honey is sweet and actually having that taste on your tongue in, by experience. So grace is yours now. Have you tasted it? To be a Christian is to be gospeled by the good news of the grace you've received through the suffering Messiah, Jesus, and all the good things that come after. <laughs> just, just meditate on that. I don't know what your week was like in the last week. What do you hear when you know that you are adopted, holy, and blameless? As we read this morning from Colossians, you stand in God's presence 
without a single fault. I have faults. <laughs> That's a gift of grace. See, Peter says this is pro- grace that was promised. Right? They were, it was the prophets of old were looking for. There's a great and horrifying picture of grace in Ezekiel 37 that helps highlight how dramatic of a change this is. Right? Ezekiel has a lot of weird things in it, but this is one of those places where you can say, I understand this. Um, right? So God's people, how are they living up to the command to love God and love their neighbor in, in chapter 37. Well, they're in a valley of death filled with dry, dusty bones. Right? It's not just bones. They're dry and dusty. They're dead. Right? And so God asks Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? Right? Try it. Find a pile of bones in the woods and tell them to stand up and walk. Right? My kids discovered uh, just a random squirrel paw hanging out in the woods, right? Doesn't matter what they tell that squirrel to do, he's not coming back because he's he's dead. So if you say to the bones, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God, do better, they can't. And so God shows Ezekiel these bones will live as God speaks. This is an act of grace. This is what will happen, that God out of the desire to be known, he breathes his breath and there's a rattling of the bones as they come together and then the sinews join them together and then the flesh comes and all of a sudden this valley of dry bones of of scattered nothingness are formed into an army of faithful followers of the Lord. What did the bones do to deserve it? (laughs) Nothing. See, that's a picture of what it means to be a Christian. God's Spirit breathed on you and you came to life through the hearing of the good news of what Jesus has done for you. That grace promised is yours now. And if that weren't good enough that he would forgive you, accept you, and welcome you, all right, with that grace promises comes all the subsequent glories, all the... This is what makes the gospel so hard to believe when you start talking about it because the promises are so big and so different from the life we experience right now. All right, so you keep going in Ezekiel in chapter 37. God promises to grace his people with unity around a new king, someone, a descendant of David. This family that has squabbled for centuries are going to get along. They're going to be joined together. I'm going to build something where Christians are unified. So if you're friends in the church, that's a gift of grace. God promises in the same chapter, I'm going to give you the power to fight sin. And he says, I'm going to save them from all the backslidings from which they have sinned. I will cleanse them. They will be my people and I will be their God. To want to change, that's a gift of grace. To care what God thinks. That's a gift of grace that was promised long ago. All right, and according to Ezekiel, God's going to make a new temple, this place where this grace is going to flow directly from God himself, and it's, it's too little a thing to just stay contained in Israel. And that's how the, the book ends. It, it ends with this poetry in chapter 47 of this, this massive river filling the world, right? And there are trees around it, flourishing trees, 
trees that aren't withering in the heat of hardship and misery because the life they receive is coming from God himself, right? and that those leaves are for healing. But if, if the metaphor is, we're the trees, and what we're growing is for healing, who is the healing for? Right? We're being helped in order to heal others. We're going to be a conduit of God's grace to others. All that's promised in Ezekiel. And that's just one section. Right? I mean, Revelation makes it clear that the, the leaves will be for the healing of the nations because of what God will do. So, when you're grieved by various trials, you have to gaze at grace. You have to gaze at the grace you've received in Jesus. And to do that, you have to better understand the salvation we have, according to Peter, by better understanding the Old Testament. Don't, don't disconnect the new from the old. You have to gaze into the gospel in the Old Testament because that's what, this is how Peter describes it. You want to better understand grace, the grace that was to be yours, Right? Look, at, look at how he describes the Old Testament. It's all about the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That the, the story of the Bible is not about you. It's not about me. We get the benefits, but it's about the Christ, the Messiah. This is why it's, makes it, it makes it much harder to get your mind wrapped around if you think about it as a story about you. But when you see it as a story about what God will do for you, that changes it. Because Peter just summed this up, right? Look at verse 11. These prophets of old were prophesying, looking forward. They're, they're on their tiptoes saying, what, what will God do through this mysterious, shadowy person known as the Messiah? We can't see who he is yet, but we know he's going to do something. Right? The whole story of the Bible and all its complexity is all about Christ and the plan to give God's people grace. the good news of what Christ will do. So, Peter, what's the Old Testament about? The promised Messiah to suffer for sinners. And then all the things that that work will accomplish afterwards. All right, so you could think about it this way. You have the Old Testament, God's grace promised. The New Testament, God's grace received through, through the suffering Messiah. And I know I'm simplifying a lot of complexity but that's, that's how Peter's doing it here for you. Have you learned to read the Bible as a letter from God telling you about the grace you will receive through the sufferings of Jesus? Go back to the first pages. We'll do a quick overview here, right? Genesis 3.15. The whole thing starts with a promise that someone else will suffer for you. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity, hatred between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So, right, context is key, right? These first humans are given grace upon grace, right? They haven't screwed up yet. They've just been blessed abundantly. But they choose to be independent. And so when you get to chapter 3, you start to see what kind of salvation is needed. There's shame. Everyone is hiding from God, from one another, from themselves. They feel shame. There's relational conflict. This is the world we're familiar with. We're much more familiar with, it wasn't my fault. It started here. 
Now there's thorns and thistles, right? We all have to work. Now you can work really, really hard, and at the same time, work is going to stink. These thistles are going to come up, and you're going to prick your finger, and, and you're just going to get hurt because work is going to be a chore. It's toil. It's, there's no rest. There's death. We're all in that process right now. We're all dying. In the context of Genesis, humans were supposed to be these high royal representatives of God on earth, but now they're naked and ashamed, and they're sent off wearing the clothes of an animal. They're supposed to be the image of God, but they're dressed like animals. They're supposed to be priests, walking intersections between heaven and earth, right? Walking with God in the garden. Now they're running away from him. And so the context of that first promise of grace, now that you see what's wrong with the world, right, God says to the serpent, I'm going to fix this through a, through a descendant of the one who screwed it up in the first place, these humans. Right? He's going to bruise the head of the serpent, and this son, this person, will suffer as his heel will be bruised. Do you hear the promise? God promises a warrior king to go to battle against evil. And in the process of getting the victory, his, bruise shall be, his heel shall be bruised. And if you get, step on a serpent, serpents are poisonous, and he gets your heel, its venom then courses through your veins. Perhaps there's even a preview of the Messiah's death. See, that's the promise right in the beginning. Someone will come and suffer horribly to undo what has been done. You keep going, you go to that great story of Abraham, right, where he's called to give up his only son, but the portrait of what that, that whole story is about is, is you need, right, Isaac's not the sacrifice, he's not the Messiah, right? But you do need someone to pay for sins. And you need someone like Isaac who's a willing sacrifice, who's a beloved son, So there, there's another picture of the Messiah, the beloved son who's willing to, to die for sins. I mean, I know I'm, I'm, I'm flying really fast here, skipping out a lot of details. This is hard, but otherwise we'd be here forever. Right. You get Genesis 15, right? The whole context of the promise, which is God saying, Abram, I'm going to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I want you to cut the pieces, cut a covenant. I'm, I have these extravagant promises. Let's make a deal. Except it's only God who walks through the pieces. Abram sleeping. Showing that God is saying, the immortal God, that if, if I fail to, to, to hold back any grace that I promised you, let me suffer and die like these animals. And if you fail to be blameless, since you didn't walk through it, I'm promising to keep your side of the covenant for you. The immortal God will suffer in order to ensure that Abram and all his offspring receive the blessings of his grace. Which Genesis 16 happens right after, and there's that horrific story of what, what they do to an Egyptian refugee slave. They're not blameless. God promised to suffer. You get to Moses. Somebody has to stand in the gap for the sinful people. Where Moses says to to the Lord, let me take their place in the book of life. Blot me out so that they may live. And God says no, because he's not the Messiah. 
but someone better is coming. Uh, you could talk about David, the, the portrait of the suffering king, but this good king. The times he did do good. <laughs> uh, but he too needed the Messiah. Uh, we read Isaiah 53. You could talk about Jonah, swallowed up by the whale, as a portrait of, as Jesus tells the story, right, of Jesus as being swallowed up by death for three days. The Messiah has to suffer. You could talk about Zechariah. There's promise that, that, that the shepherd of God's sheep, this good king, will be struck and he'll be all alone because the sheep will scatter. He's going to suffer alone. You could talk about the Ten Commandments, the suffering of obedience. You need somebody to actually do what we can't do, which is keep the law. I mean, the moral beauty of a person who actually loves their neighbors with the full intensity of the way they love themselves, that requires suffering. I mean, to be patient, for one, but you also have to say no to your desires again and again and again and again. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, so have you, have you tried so hard that to, to obey that you've shed your own blood yet? Look at Jesus. See, the whole Old Testament is about the suffering of the Messiah and all the good gifts that come along with the package once he suffers, dies, and rises again. And if you believe you receive this salvation, well, God gives that gift to me, that perfect satisfaction, that perfect obedience, that perfect holiness of Christ. Even though I'm still wicked and I'm treated as if I've never committed any sin and done exactly what Jesus had done and accomplished for me, all I have to do is receive the gift with a believing heart. It's the Heidelberg Catechism, right? It's astounding. It's all, it's all a gift. We haven't even talked about the subsequent glories of just all things sad coming untrue that the Messiah will do. So my question is, do you know how to read the Bible as primarily about Jesus? I mean, that's part of the ministry of the local church. But have you figured that out yet? That every success in the Bible is a dim shadow and glory and beauty of what Jesus' perfect obedience would look like. Every failure is a testimony to why you need a suffering Messiah. Every fear that conquers you shows why you need a warrior king, a Messiah, to fight for you, to win the battles that we can never win on our own. Sin, death, suffering. Every command is an opportunity to see the beauty of Jesus doing that command perfectly for you, <laughs> the Messiah. See, we're graced, and the Holy Spirit right now is showing it to us. This is why the angels never get bored of looking at the gospel, because there's so many different pictures of it in the Old Testament. I mean, this is one of the great illustrations I've heard. Right? Have you ever seen those mosaics? Uh, those mosaics of a famous figure where each and every part of that, that picture is a tiny picture of that person's life. Right? So if you zero, zoom all the way in, and you've got picture, picture right next to each other, right, of, say, Martin Luther King and all, all the, what, the great things that he did. But if you look at the individual picture, you don't really get a full picture of what he's like. Right? But if you zoom way out, then you get to see the face and say, oh, that's who he is. Right? So that's what the Old Testament is. It's a complex, connected series of tiny pictures of what the Messiah would do and what he's like. 
And it's not until you zoom all the way out and step into the New Testament and see Jesus that you realize that's what that's all about. The stories are all true in the Old Testament. This grace is yours. Where do you start? Well, my challenge for you would be find another Christian who's read this before and be gospeled alongside them. Right? Go, go, look, go hunting for the Messiah in the Old Testament. Look for grace. Look for the suffering. Look for the promises. You've got to get familiar with the material for it to, to really capture your heart, but, but there's enough in there. I mean, Isaiah 53 is very clear that someone else has to suffer for you. And it all becomes clear when you gaze at Jesus. This is, this is the conclusion here. Right. You gaze at the grace that was to be yours. You gaze into the Old Testament, the gospel that you find in the Old Testament. Of course, we're called to gaze at Jesus. Um, why would Peter talk about the Messiah in this particular way? Right. First is suffering, and then glory. Who's he writing to? Christians who want glory and comfort now and want to avoid the suffering because we're in agony. And so what part of the purpose of what Peter's doing here is he wants to see that the testing fires you are engaged in right now, the trouble you're going through, um, you're on a familiar path. Jesus blazed that path already for you. First was the cross, then the crown. And Peter knows painfully, Right? Peter writes here, if necessary, you have been grieved. Jesus said, it is necessary that I die. And the first time he told Peter that news in Mark chapter 8, you know how Peter responded? Get out of here, Jesus. Don't say such ridiculous things. And that's when Jesus turns to Peter and says, calm down, Satan. Get behind me. You're not thinking the things of God. You're thinking about how people think. First the cross then glory, first suffering, then the crown. We're called to follow this Savior. But if you look at Jesus, what he did for you, you realize that he has purchased all that glory for you and that grace will be brought to you at the end. All you have to do is hold on by faith now. And Peter goes on to even further, right? He said, if you hold on by faith, you're going to get to the end, you're going to realize you were guarded by God's power the whole time. It was a gift of grace from beginning to end. That's why this chapter is so, so good, and that's why I broke it into four parts for 12 verses. Right? These are the things into which angels long to look. The story of Jesus is true. Grace is ours, and because that is true, you can trust him in the testing fires. He's at work making you something more precious than gold. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel, and as we got a glimpse of it today, I pray you would, well, that we responded like Peter when he first heard how this worked. Our hearts were burning in awe and in love and with joy inexpressible that you would bless us this much. And so I pray for all of us who are suffering, who need to see Jesus, I pray your spirit would proclaim that good news to their hearts, and, and they too would, well, though we have not seen him, would leave here loving him a little more deeply. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.